0: Welcome to the 377th of the Cthulhu Podcast. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll continue with part two of Through South Africa, and then we'll follow that up with part eight of The Boats of the Glen Carrick by William Hope Hodgson. Let's head to that dark continent. Chapter One. Bulawayo, November the 5th, 1897. This extraordinary town does not disappoint expectations by its progress or present condition. It is in about as advanced a state as it could well be, considering the troubles it has endured. Water and cattle plague have retarded the progressive growth of a town that would have been by this, judging from the spirit of the people, a phenomenon in a century which has seen cities grow like mushrooms. It is cast on broad lines. Its streets rival those of Washington for breadth and its houses occupy as much space as decency requires, for unless they were pulled down and scattered over their respective lots, it is scarcely possible with due respect to height that they could occupy more. Bulawayo. Its situation, however, does not approach what I had anticipated to find. From its association to Lobenguela, the dread Matabili despot on whose single word hung life and death, I had expected to find Bulawayo situate on a commanding eminence, looking down on broad lowlands and far-reaching views that fed the despot's pride of power. Instead of which, we find it squatted low on a reddish plain, the ridges of its houses scarcely higher than the thorn bush that surrounds it. There are no hills or eminences anywhere in view whence a large prospect could be obtained. In fact, the greater part of South Africa appears different to what I had imagined. Probably the partiality of all South African writers for Dutch terms had contributed to give me erroneous impressions. When I read Fenimore Cooper and Main Reed's description of the West, I fancied I knew what a prairie or a plain was, and when years afterwards I came in view of them, my impressions were only confirmed. But High, Low, Bush, Veld and Carew, etc. have always been indefinite terms to me and so I came to conceive aspects of land which were different to the reality. For a thousand miles we've been travelling over very level or slightly undulating plains, bush-covered over large spaces, and the rest being genuinely grassy prairie. After a thousand mites, or nearly three days by rail, over a flat country of this description, one naturally thinks that the objective point of such a journey must be of a different character. Most of the guests were on the qui vive for a pleasing change of scenery until we were within five minutes of Bulawayo station. All at once we caught sight of a few gleams of zinc roofs through the low thorn bush and a single iron smokestack. When we came out of the bush, Bulawayo was spread out before us, squatted on what is undeniably a plain. This plain continues to be of the same character of levelness as far as Salisbury, aye even as far as the northern edge of Mashona land. It spreads out to Fort Victoria equally level, and as the land declines to Nagami and to Victoria Falls, it still retains the appearance of plains. Now the wonder to me is, not that I am 1,360 miles north of Cape Town, but that the railway limit should be fixed at Bulawayo, a mere bit of undistinguishable acreage in a flat area, which extends to over half a million square miles. Why is this place more than any other? There's no river near it, there's no topographic feature to distinguish it. Why not have continued this trunk line onto Salisbury, onto Tete, or to the Zambezi? Why not have continued it onto Victoria Falls? The New Railway Considering that we've come all the way from London, 7,300 miles away, to celebrate the arrival of the locomotive at Bulawayo. Such questions may sound ungrateful, and consider that last night at the banquet every speaker had something favourable to say of the Bucuna Land Railway and its builders. Such questions may be supposed to indicate disagreement with the general opinion. There is really no necessity to suppose anything of that kind. Both the builders and the railway deserve praise. The fact that some eight trains have already arrived at Bulawayo and that every passenger expresses himself warmly as to the condition of the line and the pleasure derived from the journey, ought to satisfy everyone that the railway is ready for traffic and will serve for many years, I hope, to connect Bulawayo with Cape Town. But I want my readers to thoroughly understand what has been done without prejudice to Bulawayo, the railway, or its builders. I am not so surprised at the railway, as at the length of time people in South Africa were content to be without it, The whole country seems to have been created for railway making. It offers as few difficulties as the London embankment Hyde Park is extremely uneven as compared with it. For nearly a thousand miles the railway sleepers have been laid at intervals of 30 inches on the natural face of the land. The rails have been laid across these and connected together. The native navvies have scraped a little soil together sufficient to cover the steel sleepers and the iron road was thus made ready for traffic. In March 1896, the railway was but a few miles beyond Mafeking, say about 880 miles from Cape Town. On November 4, 1897, it is 1,360 miles in length from Cape Town, showing a construction of 480 miles in 19 months. There is nothing remarkable in this. The Union Pacific Railway between Omaha and Denver progressed at 3, 4 and even 5 miles per day over a much more irregular surface. But then, of course, the navvies were Irishmen, who handled the shovel like experts, and the rails with the precision and skill of master workmen. Natives could not be expected to attain the proficiency and organisation of the American Celts. In one of the Cape Specials A special train left Cape Town on Sunday at 4pm. A corridor train of six coaches, marked Bulawayo, at an ordinary provincial-looking station, seemed somewhat strange. Had it been March Yijiji or Yabuya, it could not have been more so. Three of us were put in a compartment for four. The fourth berth was available for hand luggage. Soon after starting, we were served with tea and biscuits, and were it not for the flat wilderness scenery, we might have imagined ourselves in an international sleeping car. Timetables were also furnished us from which we learned that we would do at kimberley 647 miles at 1015 p.m. on the next day november the 1st at mafeking 870 miles at 312 p.m. on november the 2nd palachui in Kahamas county 1132 miles at 1247 p.m. november the 3rd and at bulawayo 1360 miles at 930 a.m. on november the 4th which would be 90 hours at 15 miles per hour. It took us an hour to cross the Lowry Strait, which at no very distant period must have been covered by sea and separated the Cape Peninsula from the continent. At 5.30 we arrived at Palle, 35 miles, a beautiful place suggestive of Italy with its vineyards, gardens and shrubbery, and lovingly enfolded by a Drakenstein range. With its groves of fir and eucalyptus, bright sunshine and pleasant-faced people, with picturesque mountains round about, it seemed a most desirable place. The Pahl station and others we passed bear witness to the excellence of the Cape Railway administration. The names of the stations were boldly printed on japanned iron plates, and through the passage of so many trains crowded with distinguished strangers had drawn large assemblages of colonists, male and female, whites, mulattoes and negroes, the cleanliness and orderliness that prevailed was very conspicuous. A message to Mr Le Boucher. At 6pm we had passed Wellington, 45 miles, which went to prove the rate of travel. This town also drew from us admiring expressions for its picturesque situation in one of the folds of the Drakenstein for the early summer green of its groves, vineyards and fields, and its pretty white houses. I thought, as I marked the charming town and its church spires, and the sweet groves around, what a contrast it was to the time when the Hottentot reared his cattle in the valley, and the predatory bushman infested the neighbourhood and preyed on the ground game and goats. On the platform amongst those who welcomed our coming were a dozen radical shoemakers lately arrived from Leicester. They charged Colonel Saunderson MP, my fellow traveller, with an expressive message to Mr. Le Boucher. It is too forcible and inelegant for print, but it admirably illustrates the rapidity with which radicals become perverted by travel. Darkness found the train labouring through the mountain defile of the Hex River. We could see but a loom of the rugged heights on either side, but from all accounts this part of the line is one of the show places, which strangers are asked to note. At daylight, we were well on the Karoo, which at first sight was all but a desert. However, we were not long on it before we all took to it kindly. The air was strangely appetising, and we could not help regarding it with benevolence. The engineers who designed the line must have been skilful men, and by the track as the train curves in and out of the narrowing valleys and broadening plains, we're led to suppose that the continent slopes gently from the interior down to the table bay. The railway is a surface line without a single tunnel or any serious cutting. The gradients in some places are stiff, but a single engine finds no difficulty in surmounting them. At 4pm of November 1st, we reached the 458th mile from Cape Town, so that our rate of travel had been 19 miles the hour. On tolerably level parts, our speed as timed by watch was 30 miles, Stoppages and steep gradients reduced this to 19 miles. We were fast asleep by the time we reached Kimberley. Night and the short pause we made prevented any correct impressions of the chief city of the diamond fields. At half past six of November 2nd, we woke up at Tangs, 731 miles. The small stream over which we entered the late crown colony of Bakuna Land serves as a frontier line between it and Grica Land. The Capabilities of Bakunaland. The first view of the country reminded me of East-Central Africa, and I looked keenly at it to gauge its capabilities. To a newcomer, it would not seem so full of promise as it was to me. It would appear as a waterless region, and too dry for a man accustomed to green fields and flowing rivers. But I've seen nothing between the immediate neighbourhood of the Missouri River and the Rocky Mountains to surpass it, and each mile we travelled into Bakunaland confirmed that impression. Every few miles we crossed a dry watercourse, but though there was no water in sight, it does not derogate from its value as farmland. The plateau of Persia is a naked desert compared to it, and yet Persia possesses eight millions of peoples, and at one time contained double that number. The prairies of Nebraska, of Colorado and Kansas are inferior in appearance, and I've seen them in their uninhabited state but today they're remarkable for the growth of their many cities and their magnificent farming estates. All that is wanted to render Bakuna land a desirable colony is water, so that every farm might draw irrigating supplies from reservoirs along these numerous watercourses. For nature has so disposed the land that anyone with observant eyes may see with what little trouble water could be converted into rich green pastures and fields bearing weighty grain crops. The track of the railway runs over broad almost level valleys hemmed in by masses of elevated land which have been broken up by ages of torrential rains and whose soil has been swept by the floods over the valleys naturally leaving the bases of the mountains higher than the central depression. If a Persian colonist came here he would say how admirable for my purpose I shall begin my draining ditches or canots from the bases of those hills and train them down towards the lower parts of these valleys by which time I shall have as many constant and regular running streams as I have ditches, and my flocks and herds and fields shall have an abundance of the necessary element. A thousand such Persians would create thus a central stream with the surplus of water flowing along the valley, and its borders would become one continuous grove. As the Persians would do, the English colonists whose luck it may be to come to this land may also do and enrich themselves faster than by labouring at gold mining. These dry riverbeds, now filled with sand, need only to have stone dams built across every few hundred yards to provide any number of reservoirs. They've been formed by rushing torrents which have furrowed the lowlands down to the bedrock, and the depth and breadth of the river courses shows us what mighty supplies of water are wasted every year. As the torrents slacken their flow, they deposited their sediment, and finally filtered through underneath until no water was visible. But by digging down about two feet, it is found in liberal quantities, cool and sweet. Even the improvident black has discovered what the greenness of the grass shows, that though water is not visible, it is not far off. At one station, the guards told me that they could find plenty of water by an hour's digging, which was a marvel to many of our party. I was told in Kama's territory that Karma, the chief, owned 800,000 head of cattle before the Rinderpest made its appearance and reduced his stock by half. If true, and there is no reason to doubt it, it shows what Bakunaland might become with trifling improvements. Mafeking Before we came to Vryberg, the continuous valley had broadened out into a prairie with not a hill in sight. The face of the land was as bare as though ploughed. By 4pm we'd come to the 850th mile showing that the rate during the last 24 hours had been 16 and a third miles an hour. Since Tongs, 731 miles we'd been closely skirting the Transvaal frontier while to the west of the line lay what was once the mission field of Livingston and Moffat. An hour later we arrived at Mafeking on the Malopo River a tributary of the Orange River. Mafeking will always be celebrated in the future as the place where Jameson started on his desperate incursion into the Dutch Republic. The Malopo River contains lengthy pools of water along its deepened course, but the inhabitants of Mafeking are supplied by copious springs from Montesilla's old farm. The town lies on the north or right bank and is 870 miles from Cape Town. It is 4,194 feet above the sea. Already it has been laid out in broad streets which are planted with trees, and as these are flourishing they promise to furnish General Shade in a few years. Outside of the town there is not a tree in sight, scarcely a shrub, and consequently it is more purely a prairie town than any other. Due east of it lies Pretoria, the Boer capital, about 180 miles distant, and it may be when the Boers take broader views of their duty to South Africa at large, and their own interests, that they will permit a railway to be constructed to connect the two towns, in which case the people of Mafeking cannot fail to profit by having exits to Delagoa Bay, Durban and Cape Town. It will be passing strange also, if the neighbourhood of Mafeking will not be found to contain some of the minerals for which the Transvaal is famous. The Malmani goldfield is about 50 miles off, and the Zerust lead and quicksilver mine but a trifle further. For the growing of cereals, it ought also to be distinguished as the neighbouring state, for the soil is of the right colour. In Kama's Country On leaving Mafeking, we were in the Bakuna Land Protectorate, a country of even greater promise than the Crown Colony. The next morning, November the 3rd, we were well into Kama's Country, 1,071 miles from Cape Town. A thin forest of acacia trees about 20 feet in height "'covered the face of the land. "'The soil was richly ochreous in colour. "'The grass was young and of a tender green, "'and the air cool and refreshing. "'The railway constructors must have rejoiced "'on finding so little labour required "'to perform their contract in this section. "'By skilfully chosen curves, "'they were enabled to easily surmount "'the unevenness of the surface, "'and nothing more was required "'than to lay the steel sleepers on the ground, "'cross them with rails, and a few spadefuls of earth to complete the railway. The train runs wonderfully smooth and steady, and we experienced less discomfort than on some English trains I know. This is naturally due in great nature to the slower and safer rate of speed we travel, and the newness of the rolling stock. During the whole day we were not once reminded by any jolt, jar or swaying of any imperfections, and our nights were undisturbed by loose play of rails or jumping. At Three Sisters, 388 miles from Cape Town, we were at the highest altitude of the line, being 4,518 feet above the sea. Thence, to Bulawayo, 1,000 miles, the greatest variation in altitude is 1,500 feet. But were it not for the railway guide, we would never have supposed that the variation was over 100 feet, so imperceptible are the ascents and the descents of the line. Magalapi Station 1,088 miles, consisted of a third-class carriage and a goods van laid on three lengths of rail. We were halted nearly an hour near the Magalapi River and learned that we were 60 miles inside of Kama's country. Improvements are proceeding to make the line more secure during the torrential season. At present, it descends into the bed of a broad stream of sand and here, if anywhere, a smart rainfall would destroy the line. Consequently, a high embankment has been made, stone piers have been built, and an iron bridge will span the river at a sufficient height. Here we heard also that one of the special trains ahead of us had suffered an accident from the explosion of an oil engine, which generated the electric light and resulted in the burning of two men and one of them badly. The Magalapi River is one of those sandy watercourses so common in South Africa. To provide water for the station, a broad ditch was cut across the sandy course, which was soon filled with clear and excellent water, enough, in fact, to supply a small township. It is to be hoped that all the guests noted this, and carried away with them the object lesson. What water storage would do The sight of this suggested to me that there was an opportunity for a genius like Rhodes to do more for south africa than could be done by the discovery and exploitation of goldfields a company called the united south african waterworks might buy land along the principal watercourses build a series of stone dams across them clean out the sand between them and so obtain hundreds of reservoirs for the townships that would certainly be established in their neighbourhood beyond palatwee 1,132 miles, the thorn trees begin to disappear and the leafier woods which resemble dwarf oak take their place, though there are few higher trees than 20 feet. The soil is good, however, despite the fact that each dry season the fires destroy the grasses and the loams which are necessary for their nourishment. Most of the stations in this part are of mere corrugated iron cottages or railway carriages, temporarily lent for the housing of the guards. Pauperizing the native. At each halting place since arriving in Bakunaland, we've been made aware how quickly the Englishman's generous disposition serves to teach natives to become beggars. Italy, Switzerland, Egypt have thus suffered great harm. From tongues to Polochi, crowds of stalwart and able-bodied natives of both sexes have flocked around the kitchen car to beg for bread, meat and kitchen refuse. It is a novel and amusing sight at present but in the course of time I fancy this practice of patronising beggars will make a callous and offensive breed that will not easily be put off with words. At Chashi River, 5pm, the three special trains lay close together because of the difficult gradient leading out of the bed of the river. While the engines assisted the trains up the steep, I came across an impromptu presentation of an address by the Mayor of Cape Town to Mr Logan, the caterer of the excursion parties. According to what was said, we were all made to believe that we could not have been better served had the first European caterer undertaken the provisioning, to which no one could make any objection, and a duly signed testimonial to that effect was presented to that gentleman. The scene, however, seemed odd at unknown shashi, and strongly illustrated a racial characteristic for speech-making and presentation of testimonials. Nearing Bulawayo On the morning of November the 4th, we saw, as we looked out of the carriage, that the country was a continuation of that of the previous day. It was still as level, apparently, as a billiard table. We were drawing near to Bulawayo, where, in fact, due there about 9am. We'd been led to expect a more tropical vegetation, but as yet, though we were only 60 miles off, we saw no signs of it, but rather a return to the thornbush of the Karoo and southern Bakuna land, one variation we noted, the rocky cop, is more frequent. These curious little hill heaps of rock are remnants of the primeval tableland that rose above the present face of the country from 100 to 300 feet. The sight of these curious cops deepened the idea that the seat of the killer Lubenguala would be found on a high eminence protected by a cluster of these cops. But we looked long in vain for such a cluster of hills. Even the sight of a lordly tree would be welcomed, for the tame landscape was growing monotonous. The absence of scenery incidents did not diminish our friendly sympathies towards Rhodesia, and we made the most of what was actually visible. The blue sky, the dwarf trees, the low green herbage, which dotted the ground in the midst of wide expanses of tawdiness, The burnt grass tussocks, which we knew would in a few days be covered with a carpet of green. We see the land just before the season changes, and signs of vivifying spring approaching are abundant. A few days ago the first rains set in. The last two nights have witnessed a wonderful exhibition of electric display in the heavens, and severe thunderstorms have followed. In another fortnight, it is said, the plains will have become like a vast garden. At thirty-five miles from Bulawayo, we came to the Matopo siding, The engineers stopped for breakfast at a restaurant and a boarding house, which was a grass hut twenty feet long. Nearby, a diminutive zinc hut was called General Store. Several tarpaulins sheltered various heaps of miscellanea. There, a Matabele servant of a fur trader informed us that Lobengwala was still alive near the Zambezi, happy with abundance of mealies and cattle, and that any white man approaching his hiding place would be surely killed but that if any large number of white men went near him, he would again fly. At the 1,335th mile from Cape Town, an accident to the special train ahead of us retarded us for four hours. The engine, tender, water tank and bogey car ran off of the track. No one was hurt, fortunately, and by 1pm we were all underway again, though the first lunch we were to have eaten together at Bulawayo was necessarily changed to the first dinner. At 2.30 we were on the alert to catch the first view of Bulawayo and at 2.55pm a few stray gleams of white seen through the thornbush were pointed out to us as the capital of Matabili Land. We'd passed the famous Matopo Hills to the right of us but excepting for their connection with the late war there was nothing interesting in them. They consist of a series of these rocky copse of no great height lying close together mere wrecks of the crest of a great land wave Terrible enough when, behind each rocky boulder and crevice, a rifleman lies hidden. But peaceful now, that the war is over, and the white man has made himself an irremovable home in the land. Sir A. Milner at Bulawayo As was said, we entered Bulawayo a few minutes later, and saw the crude beginnings of a city that must, if all goes well, grow to a great distinction. As a newcomer with but an hour or two's experience of it, I dare not venture upon saying anything more. We heard that the Governor, Sir A. Milner, had already officiated at the ceremony of the opening of the line, that his speech was not remarkable for any memorable words, but that he had given the Victoria Cross to some trooper for gallant conduct in the field. I heard that Sir Alfred has also read a dispatch from Mr. Chamberlain, which was to the effect that the opening of the railway to Bulawayo was an anxious thing that he sent a message to the settlers assembled to celebrate the event. He sympathised with their troubles, but he was gratified to think that there was a happier future in store for them. The railway would be a stimulus to every form of enterprise and would eventually bind the north and the south together. In the evening, the dinner took place at the Palace Hotel, which is a building that does not deserve such a title as might be inferred from the haste with which it was constructed. Ten days ago, few believed that it would be in a fit state to receive any guests, but we found it sufficiently advanced to house the 400 who had arrived. Some portions of it, especially the reception room, would be no discredit to the best hotel at the Cape. The accounts of what occurred at the banquet, as described by the local reporters, I do not reproduce here and refer my reader to the next chapter for what I have gathered of value from personal observation. And now for the next part of the Boats of the Glen Carrick. Chapter 8. The Noises in the Valley Now, so soon as we had gotten the boat into safety, the which we did with a most feverish haste, the boatswain gave his attention to Job, for the boy had not yet recovered from the blow which the loom of the oar had dealt him beneath the chin when the monster had snatched at it. For a while his attentions produced no effect, but presently, having bathed the lad's face with water from the sea and rubbed rum into his chest and over his heart, the youth began to show signs of life and soon opened his eyes whereupon the boatswain gave him a stiff jorum of the rum, after which he asked him how he seemed in himself. To this Job replied in a weak voice that he was dizzy, and his head and neck ached badly, on hearing which the boatswain bade him to keep quiet, lying until he had come more to himself. And so we left him in quietness, under a little shade of canvas and reeds. For the air was warm and the sand was dry, and he was not like to come to any harm there. At a little distance, under the directing of the boatswain, we made to prepare dinner, for we were now very hungry. It seemed a great while since we'd broken our fast, and to this end the boatswain sent two of the men across the island to gather some of the dry seaweed, for we intended to cook some of the salt meat, this being the first cooked meal since ending the meat which we'd boiled before leaving the ship in the creek. In the meanwhile, we, until the return of the men with the fuel, the boatswain kept us busied in various ways. He sent two to cut a bundle of reeds, and another couple to bring the meat and the iron boiler, the latter being one that we'd taken from the old brig. Presently the men returned with dried seaweed, and very curious stuff it seemed, some of it being in chunks near as thick as a man's body, but exceedingly brittle by reason of its dryness. So in a little we had a very good fire going, which we fed with the seaweed and pieces of the reeds, though we found the latter to be but indifferent fuel, having too much sap, and being more troublesome to break into convenient size. Now when the fire had grown red and hot, the boatswain half filled the boiler with seawater, in which he placed the meat, and the pan, having a stout lid, he did not scruple to place it in the very heart of the fire, so that soon we had the contents boiling merrily. Having gotten the dinner underway, the boatswain set about preparing our camp for the night, which we did by making a rough framework with the reeds over which we spread the boat's sails and cover, pegging the canvas down with tough splinters of the reed. When this was completed, we set to and carried there all our stores, after which the boatswain took us over to the other side of the island to gather fuel for the night, which we did, each man bearing a great double armful. Now by the time we'd brought over, each of us, two loads of the fuel, we found the meat to be cooked, and so without more to do set ourselves down and made a very good meal of it, and some biscuits, after which we had each of us a sound tot of the rum. Having made an end of eating and drinking, the bosun went over to where Job lay, to inquire how he felt, and found him lying very quiet, though his breathing had a heavy touch about it. However, we could conceive of nothing by which he might be bettered, and so left him, being more hopeful that nature would bring him to health than any skill of which we possessed. By this time it was late afternoon, so that the boatswain declared we might please ourselves until sunset, deeming that we had earned a very good right to rest, but that from sunset until the dawn we should, he told us, have each of us take turn and turn about to watch. For though we were no longer upon the water, none might say whether we were out of danger or not, as witnessed the happening of the morning. Though certainly he apprehended no danger from the devilfish so long as we kept well away from the water's edge. And so from now until dark, most of the men slept. But the boatswain spent much of that time in overhauling the boat, to see how it might chance to have suffered during the storm. And also, whether the struggles of the devilfish had strained it in any way. And indeed, it was speedily evident that the boat would need some attention, for the plank in her bottom, next but one to the keel upon the starboard side, had been burst inwards. This having been done, it would seem, by the rock in the beach hidden just beneath the water's edge, the devilfish having no doubt ground the boat down upon it. Happily, the damage was not great though it would most certainly have to be carefully repaired before the boat would be again seaworthy. For the rest, there seemed to be no other part needing attention. Now I had not felt any call to sleep, and so had followed the boatswain to the boat, giving him a hand to remove the bottom boards, and finally to slew her bottom a little upwards, so that he might examine the leak more closely. When he'd made an end with the boat, we went over to see the stores, and looked closely into their condition, and also to see how they were lasting. And after that he sounded all the water-breakers, having done which he remarked that it would be well for us if we could discover any fresh water upon the island. By this time it was getting on towards evening, and the bosun went across to look at Job, finding him as much as he had been when we visited him after dinner. At that the bosun asked me to bring across one of the longer of the bottom boards, which I did. And we made use of it as a stretcher to carry the lad into the tent. And afterwards we carried all of the loose woodwork of the boat into the tent, emptying the lockers of their contents, which included some oakum, a small boat's hatchet, a coil of one and a half inch hemp line, a good saw, an empty colza oil tin, a bag of copper nails, some bolts, washers, two fishing lines, three spare tholes, a three pronged grain without the shaft, two balls of spun yarn three hanks of roping twine, a piece of canvas with four roping needles stuck into it, the boat's lamp, a spare plug, and a roll of light duck for making boat's sails. And so presently the dark came down upon the island, at which the boatswain waked the men and bade them throw more fuel onto the fire, which had burned down to a mound of glowing embers much shrouded in ash. After that, one of them part-filled the boiler with fresh water. And soon we were occupied most pleasantly upon a supper of cold boiled salt meat and hard biscuits, and rum mixed in with the hot water. During supper, the boatswain made clear to the men regarding the watches, arranging how they should follow so that I found I was set down to take my turn from midnight until one of the clock. Then he explained to them about the burst plank in the bottom of the boat, and how that it would have to be put right before we could hope to leave the island, and that after that night, we should have to go most strictly with the victuals, for there seemed to be nothing upon the island that we had up until then discovered fit to satisfy our bellies. More to this, if we could find no fresh water, he should have to distill some to make up for that which we had drunk, and this must be done before leaving the island. Now by the time that the boatswain had made an end of explaining these matters, we had ceased from eating and soon after this we made each one of us a comfortable place in the sand within the tent, and lay down to sleep. For a while I found myself very wakeful, which may have been because of the warmth of the night, and indeed at last I got up and went out of the tent, conceiving that I might the better find sleep in the open air. And so it proved. For having lain down at the side of the tent a little way from the fire, I soon fell into a deep slumber, which at first was dreamless. Presently, however, I came upon a very strange and unsettling dream, for I dreamed that I had been left alone on the island, and was sitting very desolate upon the edge of the brown-scummed pit. Then I was aware, suddenly, that it was very dark and very silent, and I began to shiver, for it seemed to me that something which repulsed my whole being had come quietly behind me. At that I tried mightily to turn and look into the shadows amongst the great fungi that stood all about me, but I had no power to turn. And the thing was coming nearer, though never a sound came to me. And I gave out a scream, or tried to, but my voice made no stir in the rounding quiet. And then something wet and cold touched my face, and slithered down and covered my mouth, and paused there for a while, breathless moment. It passed onward and fell to my throat and stayed there. Someone stumbled and felt over my feet, and at that I was suddenly awake. It was the man on watch making a walk around the back of the tent. He had not known of my presence until he fell over my boots. He was somewhat shaken and startled, as might be supposed, but steadied himself on learning that it was no wild creature crouched there in the shadow, and all the time as I answered his inquiries. I was full of a strange, horrid feeling that something had left me at the moment of my awakening. There was a slight, hateful odour in my nostrils that was not altogether unfamiliar, and then suddenly I was aware that my face was damp and that there was a curious sense of tingling at my throat. I put up my hand and felt my face, and the hand, when I brought it away, was slippery with slime, and at that I put up my other hand and touched my throat, and there it was the same only in addition. There was a slight swelled place, a little to one side of the windpipe, sort of place that the bite of a mosquito will make, and I had no thought to blame any mosquito. Now the stumbling of the man over me, my awakening and the discovery that my face and throat were beslimed, were but the happenings of some few short instants, and then I was upon my feet and following him around to the fire, for I had a sense of chilliness and a great desire not to be alone. Having come to the fire, I took some of the water that had been left in the boiler and washed my face and neck, after which I felt more my own man. Then I asked the man to look at my throat, so that he might give me some idea of what manner of place the swelling seemed, and he, lighting a piece of the dry seaweed to act as a torch, made examination of my neck, but could see little save a number of small ring-like marks, red inwardly and white at the edges, and one of them was bleeding slightly. After that I asked to see whether he had seen anything moving around the tent, but he had seen nothing during all the time that he had been on watch, though it was true that he had heard odd noises, but nothing very near at hand. Of the places on my throat he seemed to think but little, "'suggesting that I'd been bitten by some sort of sandfly. "'But at that I shook my head and told him of my dream, "'and after that he was as anxious to keep near me as I to him. "'And so the night passed onward, until my turn came to watch. "'For a little while the man whom I had relieved sat beside me, "'having, I conceived, the kindly intent of keeping me company. "'But so soon as I perceived this I entreated him to go and to get his sleep assuring him that I had no longer any feeling of fear, such as had been mine upon awakening and discovering the state of my face and throat, and upon this he consented to leave me, and so in a little I sat alone beside the fire. For a certain space I kept very quiet, listening, but no sound came to me out of the surrounding darkness, as though as though it were a fresh thing it was borne in upon me, how that we were in a very abominable place of loneliness and desolation, and I grew very solemn. Thus, as I sat, the fire, which had not been replenished for a while, dwindled steadily until it gave but a dullish glow around, and then in the direction of the valley I heard suddenly the sound of a dull thud, the noise coming to me through the stillness with a very startling clearness. At that I perceived that I was not doing my duty to the rest, nor to myself, by sitting and allowing the fire to cease from flaming, and immediately reproaching myself I seized and cast the mass of the dry weed upon the fire, so that a great blaze shot up into the night. And afterwards I glanced quickly to the right and to the left, holding my cut and thrust very readily, and most thankful for the Almighty that I had brought no harm to any by reason of my carelessness, which I inclined to me to believe, was that strange inertia which is bred of fear. And then even as I looked about me there came to me across the silence of the beach a fresh noise, a continual soft slithering to and fro in the bottom of the valley, as though a multitude of creatures moved stealthily. At this I threw yet more fuel upon the fire, and after that I fixed my gaze in the direction of the valley. Thus in the following instant it seemed to me that I saw a certain thing as it might be a shadow, move on to the outer borders of the firelight. Now the man who had kept watch before me had left his spear stuck upright in the sand, convenient to my grasp, and seeing something moving, I seized the weapon and hurled it with all my strength in its direction. But there came no answering cry to tell that I had struck anything living, and immediately afterwards there fell once more a great silence upon the island being broken only by a far splash out upon the weed. It may be conceived, with truth, that the above happenings had put a very considerable strain upon my nerves, so that I looked to and fro continually, with ever and anon a quick glance behind me, for it seemed to me that I might expect some demonic creature to reach upon me at any moment. Yet for the space of many minutes there came to me neither any sight nor sound of living creature, so that I knew not what to think, being near to doubting if I had heard aught beyond the common. And then even as I made halt upon the threshold of doubt, I was assured that I had not been mistaken, for abruptly I was made aware that all the valley was full of rustling, scampering sorts of noises, through which there came to me occasional soft thuds, and anon the former slithering sounds, and at that thinking a host of evil things to be upon us, I cried out to the boatswain and to the men to awake. Immediately upon my shout, the boatswain rushed out from the tent, the men following and every one with his weapon save the man who had left his spear in the sand, and that lay now somewhere beyond the light of the fire. Then the boatswain shouted, to know what thing had caused me to cry out, but I replied nothing, only held up my hand for quietness. Yet when this was granted, the noises in the valley had ceased so that the boatswain turned to me being in need of some explanation. But I begged him to hark a little longer, which he did, and the sounds recommencing almost immediately, he heard sufficient to know that i had not wake them all without due cause. And then as we stood, each of us, staring into that darkness where lay the valley, I seemed to see again some shadowy thing upon the boundary of the firelight, and in the same instant one of the men cried out and cast his spear into the darkness. But the boatswain turned upon him with a very great anger, for in throwing his weapon the man had left himself without any, and thus brought danger to the whole. Yet, as will be remembered, I had done likewise but a little since. Presently there coming again a quietness within the valley, and none knowing what might be toward. The boatswain caught up a mass of the dry weed, and lighting it at the fire, ran with it towards that portion of the beach which lay between us and the valley. Here he cast it upon the sand, singing out to some of the men to bring more of the weed, so that we might have a fire there, and thus be able to see if anything made to come at us out of the darkness of the hollow. Presently we had a good fire, and by the light of this the two spears were discovered, both of them stuck in the sand and no more than a yard from one another, which seemed to me a very strange thing. Now for a while after the lighting of this second fire there came no further sounds from the direction of the valley. Nothing indeed to break the quietness of the island save the occasional lonely splashes that sounded from time to time out in the vastness of the weed continent. Then about an hour after I had wakened the bosun one of the men who had been tending the fires came up to him to say that we'd come to the end of our supply of weed fuel. At that the bosun looked very blank. The which did the rest of us. As well we might. Yet there was no help for it, until one of the men bethought him of the remainder of the bundle of reeds which we had cut, and which, burning but poorly, we had discarded for the weed. This was discovered at the back of the tent, and with it we fed the fire that burned between us and the valley. But the other we suffered to die out, for the reeds were not sufficient to support even the one until dawn. At last, and whilst it was still dark, we came to the end of our fuel. And as the fire died down, so did the noises in the valley recommence, and there we stood, in the growing dark, each one keeping a very ready weapon, and a more ready glance. And at times the island would be mightily quiet, and then again the sounds of the things crawling in the valley. Yet I think the silences tried us the more. And so at last came the dawn. And that's all for today, except to remind you of my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you can access not just the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Waterloo Days, also Lost on Venus by Edgar Rice Burroughs, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers. Please, go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrigg. as F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives licence. So, until next time...